0: If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 11. Chapter 11 is a very vibrant chapter. It's well known, and the imagery is striking. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy. Inerrant word. We'll be looking this evening at the first 14 verses of Revelation chapter 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God, and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them... Fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire." And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refused to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud. And their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this evening that You would teach us from Your Word, that we would be a people changed by Your Word. Lord, prepare us for the week to come, the tasks that You have placed before us, Lord, we can only face the coming day knowing that You are in charge of our lives. And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever noticed sometimes the difference between a movie and reality? You know, it's when a film begins and you see those Interesting words at the beginning credits. This story based on true events. And you wonder how true are the events and how closely are they based upon them. Everything is exaggerated a bit more for effect to grab our emotions, to, to grab our minds, to get us drawn into the story in a way that perhaps reality might not do. That, I think, is something of what we're seeing here this evening in Revelation chapter 11. If we look at this and we ask ourselves, what is the Lord teaching us through this story? This story of witnesses and killings and earthquakes. What is going on here? When is this happening? These questions have fascinated Bible scholars throughout the years. And there have been many different interpretations of this chapter. But this evening what I would like us to see is this chapter as a story that reminds us of God's work through His church, of God's protection of His church. And so what I would like us to see are three things this evening. First, the protection of the church by the Lord. Second, the witness of the church. And then third and finally, the victory of the church. So we have this story of people and tribes and temples and measurements. But we need to look deeper at this. And rather than try and find physical representations or one-to-one correlations of each one of these things, as we have said throughout the book of Revelation... We need to be looking to the deeper spiritual meaning. And so as chapter 11 begins, we have this this odd uh, scene where John is given a measuring rod like a staff. And he is told to go and measure the temple, but only the interior of the temple, not the outer court. Now, I want you to understand that in in the old days, they did not have Stanley measuring tape. You know, the kind where you zip it out and then you hold it in place and you go and you measure things. In the old days, what they did was they took a staff, a rod, a stick of a certain length and then they would measure things by it. You may have heard in the Old Testament, oftentimes, things are measured by cubit. And so they would take these these rods and they would go and they would lay them down, lay it down, pick it up, lay it down, pick it up. It was a painstaking process, but it was... Fairly accurate because it was so painstaking. And John is given this staff. He's given it by someone that we're not told just yet who it is. And he is told to rise up and measure the temple of God. So then the first question that we might ask ourselves is, what is John measuring? What is this? Is this the actual temple in Jerusalem? Is it some new temple? Is it a building? What could it be? Well, it can't just be a building. It can't just be the temple because he's called not only to measure the temple, but he's also called to measure the altar. And then he's called to measure those who worship there. Now, unless he has all of the worshipers lie down in a line so he can find out exactly how tall they are, there's something more than just pure distance going on here. Why is John doing this measuring? Is it because the Lord wants to make sure of the exact dimensions of the temple? Is the Lord a measure twice and cut once kind of person? No, I don't think so. Measuring in the scripture is not just about how big something is, it is about forming a boundary around something. It is about declaring protection over something. And so what John is doing here at the command of one who has given him the rod is he is measuring out the dimensions of the people of God. He is encompassing, as it were, all of those who are under the Lord's protection. This is very similar to those in chapter 9, verse 4, who are sealed, who have the seal of God placed on their foreheads. Now, that brings me to an interesting point. Oftentimes, I think, the greatest problems with interpreting Revelation is we see it as a novel that is chronologically in order. But in reality, this interlude between the sixth and the seventh seals in chapter 10 and chapter 11 is actually something that is going on through all of the first six seals. This is something that is a continual event. God is protecting His people through all of those plagues, dangers, and disasters that we read about in chapter 8 and chapter 9. God is always at work protecting His people and protecting them precisely. When the Lord puts His hedge of protection around us, we don't need to worry about being left on the outside. That He's quickly measuring. That He will miss us somehow. No, God is very precise in knowing exactly who are His. So whatever is happening on the outside, God cares for His own. This is in distinction to those who are outside the temple. Do you see that? John is called not to measure outside the temple because that is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. This reminds us that in the midst of God's protection of His church, it is not a protection of peace and quiet. There is a raging enemy outside those doors. Oftentimes, as Americans, we forget that. Because I dare say none of us are concerned this evening that terrorists will burst through the doors and shoot me and take you hostage. And yet we know that happens all over the earth. It happens in India. It happens in Africa. It happens in Pakistan. The people of God are called to worship God and to be protected by God, but that is in the midst of a storm that rages around them in the world. Now, why is this happening? Why is John doing this measuring? Why is he taking these measurements? Well... It is to describe for us this period of protection that the Lord gives in the midst of difficulty. And this period is not something we need to look forward to. It is not something we anticipate or try and escape. You'll notice the language that he uses in terms of time. It becomes almost a numbers game. 42 months. 1,260 days which happen if you have 30-day months, to be the same thing. If we go back to Daniel, we hear about a period of three and a half years, which is the same period of time. And so we ought not to be drawn into thinking about this period of time as some future three and a half years of difficulty that the church will come into and somehow we have to avoid it. I have to say to you again, this is American thinking. Only Americans could say, You know, God is great to us now, and we have no persecution, but someday there will be a great tribulation. Christians in Pakistan are in the midst of tribulation. Christians in India are in the midst of tribulation. But you see, here this describes in, here's a big word, eschatological, that is, end time view, the period of time of the last days. And the last days are from Jesus Christ's coming to His second coming. What John is saying in movie-like images for us is that through this last day period, a period in which we live right now, there is danger. There is a trampling of the holy city. The Gentiles, the pagans, the God-haters are out on the warpath but God has measured and protected His people. This is the last days. When we think of the world that way, it puts so far out of our mind predicting when Jesus will return or what we might do in the event of certain things happening. It puts the focus on the here and the now. And you see, today is the last days. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of the building of the kingdom of God. Not some future time. Today. These days are marked by tribulation and by protection. Well, then we have a situation where this one who has given John this rod of measurement says in verse 3, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. And now we begin to see who it is who has given John the measuring rod. The one who has marked off the temple and the people. It is Jesus himself because it is Jesus who has his witnesses. And he has these two witnesses who go out and they speak and, and again vivid things happen. They go out and if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. And then they are killed and left to sit in the street and and people frolic and party around them. And then they are raised up to heaven. And we look at this and if you're like me, your first question is, what in the world is going on here? Well, again, I think we need to avoid being overly literal with this. And you can be very, very literal My research assistant tells me that there are some who believe that this is literal fire that comes out of the mouths of two men and that people, when they see it, have a suspicion that they have hidden away flamethrowers, that when people come up to attack them, they pull them from behind their back and shoot them. And this is how some people view the book of Revelation, as a puzzle to be put together with odd details. But... I don't think that's what's going on here. We're not talking about two specific men. We're not talking about literal fire. We're talking about something much more important. We're talking about the witness of the church. Of you. And of me. You see, these witnesses are the church. Throughout all of the book of Revelation, the witnesses are the community of faith. They are the people of God who are standing for the Word of God. And we saw earlier in Revelation lampstands. And what were lampstands? They were churches. You remember our Lord saying He would take the lampstand out from the church. And so here we have two olive trees and two lampstands standing before the Lord of the earth. They are the churches. They are the people of God. And they are a burning and shining lamp This is not the first time that we read of this it's not even the first time that John speaks of it John says this in his gospel chapter 5 and verse 35 He says one more page He was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light There John is of course speaking of John the Baptist who was a shining beacon of light, a teacher of God's Word, a holder of God's law. Joel describes for us in chapter 2 how the light of prophecy, the light of God's Word, spreads not just from God's prophets anymore, but it is to all people. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And we saw how in Acts chapter 2, the church saw that this moment had come. And so we here today are these witnesses. We are the light of the world, Jesus says. If we are not the light of the world, the world is lost in darkness. We are the ones who bring the Word of God, who bring the Gospel of God. Is that because we are so important? No, it's because God has chosen to give that means to His church. And it is something we must take seriously. It is a testimony that we must present to the world. And it's a testimony that these witnesses present in sackcloth. Now, I don't know if you know what sackcloth is. When I hear sackcloth, I have this odd image in my mind of a big, old, brownish potato sack in which you cut a head hole and armholes. I don't even know if they make those kinds of potato sacks anymore, at least not when we buy potatoes their paper kind of white bags but i imagine itchy scratchy rough and i think of john the baptist or i think of elijah i think of these prophets who go out in this clothing that is weird now why would people go out in weird clothing it's because the lord has a an image that he wants to project the lord has a message that he wants to give and he wants us to associate the image with the message. And the message of sackcloth is one of repentance and judgment to come. It's what Elijah preached. It's what John the Baptist preached. Here we are to understand that part of our witness is to testify to the need of repentance That those who would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ must turn from their sin. They must turn from Satan and turn toward God. They must repent and believe. There is also the judgment that is to come. You see, one of the cruelest things that we can do is to allow others to be complacent and to rest in their unbelief and their false belief that the world will forever go on as it always has and that there will be no judgment, and that there is nothing to answer for before a righteous and holy God. But you see, these witnesses are not allowed their testimony unmolested, because they are also the object of the world's attack. When you have a message of judgment and repentance, when you have a a message that God is on the move, people don't like that. They will like stories of a higher power, or especially angels. Everybody loves angels, as long as they're cute and cuddly and fuzzy, warm light. But when you preach a message of salvation and of repentance and of judgment to come, the world will attack. And that's what happens here to these witnesses. They are attacked They defend themselves by the Word of God, but eventually, as the beast makes war upon them, he destroys them. Look with me at verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. This is very similar, if you'll turn ahead just two chapters, to verse 7 of chapter 13, which is yet another iteration of this story. And it was also allowed, that is to the beast, to make war on the saints and to conquer them. The language is very similar. You see, the beast, Satan himself, the godless world system, hates the testimony of Jesus Christ. And Satan has already done everything he can to try to kill Jesus Christ. And now, he's taking it out on the church. He's doing everything he can to stop the message from going forward. This is something that occurs throughout the whole story of the Bible. It's what Daniel about in chapter 7. How war was made on Israel. And these witnesses are seen Throughout the world, every tribe, tongue, and language sees them. And again, we don't want to be literal. This is not some kind of worldwide CNN representation. This is the fact that everywhere throughout the world, God has His people testifying for Jesus, and they are persecuted and face tribulation everywhere throughout the world. Now, if we hear that and we believe it, it could be a bit scary, can't it? But it's also, I think, comforting that we're not alone, that we don't face difficulties and challenges by ourselves, that God is at work beyond just our building, beyond just our community, beyond just our nation. God is at work everywhere. And more importantly, God cannot be stopped. Because this witness of the church also describes for us how the church is invincible because of her Savior. Do you notice that the time of the witnessing is exactly the same time as the length of the period of time of persecution? 42 months, 1260 days. So it is during this period of the last days, the days of persecution, the days of difficulty, that the church brings forth the testimony of Jesus. The church is called to do this. It is a valid legal witness. That is why there are two witnesses. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 19, you could not accept the evidence of but one witness. You had to have two So here this is the valid testimony of the church. It's what we see when Jesus sends out the 72 by 2 in Luke chapter 10. How does the church go about this witness? Have you thought about that? What program should we enact? What memorization protocol do we need? What plan of attack or agenda do we need to adopt? Of course we need a plan if we're going to be victorious, right? This is the story, I think, of the American church in the last 10 or 20 years. One fad comes after another. The only way the church will possibly succeed is if it latches on to the movie, The Last Temptation of Jesus. Some of you aren't even old enough to remember that movie. And then it was, oh, well, we have to latch on to the 40 Days of Purpose, the church can't possibly grow unless we have forty days of purpose journals, and forty days of purpose hymnals. And so we go from one to the other to the other. But you see, the imagery here points us to how the Lord will work. There are two olive trees and two lampstands. And that imagery is found in the book of Zechariah. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me there for just a moment. Zechariah is one of the last Old Testament prophets. Near the very end of the Old Testament, right before Malachi. And we see here in chapter 4, another vivid imagery, beginning here in verse 10. Well, let's actually begin in verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, that is the temple. The Jews are about to build the temple. How can this be done? His hand shall also complete it. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice, and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which reigns throughout the whole earth. And then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth you see the imagery being the same? This is another giant task before the people of God to rebuild the temple. How can they do it? The answer is found here in verse 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It is by the Spirit of God that the church accomplishes her mission. It is by the Spirit of God that you accomplish your mission that the Lord has purposed for you. God is found in the midst of His people. He has given us His Spirit. And because of this, there can be no doubt but that the church will be victorious. These last days will be difficult. These last days are punctuated with persecution occurring throughout all of the world. There is an unholy trinity arrayed against the people of God. There is the city that is Babylon, we will see later, that is also called Sodom, which is symptomatic or emblematic of all that is sinful and rotten in the world. And Egypt, symptomatic, emblematic of all that enslaves the people of God. All of these forces are arrayed against God's people but the mocking will end. Do you see that? The people go around those two dead witnesses. They mock. They refuse to let them be buried. They think that they have won. And then God, by His Spirit, breathes life into them and calls them up in an oh-so-not-secret rapture. That they might be with Him but that we might see that the victory at the end is God's. And immediately upon that, destruction flows in its wake. The mocking will not be forever. But the resurrection is certain, and the judgment to come is certain. We will look at this next week, when the seventh trumpet sounds, and time is no more. Christian. Christian. The days of your pilgrimage will come to an end. They will come to an end in glory, in blessing, and in the presence of the Lord. Let's pray.